You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So, Jay, you were looking at a grinder. How'd that go? Well, after looking at it, it was a decent machine. I think I mentioned it was a trade show mover demo. So it looked good. But at the end of the day, it was like that thing. It made sense on paper. It made sense for needs. It was a control that my guys were familiar with it. But that it factor, I just had to walk from the deal. I just didn't get a good feeling. And I just know at this point to follow my gut at some times. I would have definitely been, I guess, compromising in some way. It just wasn't, I don't want to disparage anyone, but it just wasn't the type of people I want to do long-term business with. And it really, this is a greater business lesson. The first thing that I noticed when I pulled up to their showroom was the outside of the building was just horrifically dirty. Look, it's LA, right? Most of LA is just horrifically dirty, but this was exceptionally dirty. Broken glass, containers. I think that I may have seen a shopping cart either on their property or nearby. The building was dirty, hadn't had paint for probably 30 or 40 years. And the weeds were well over four feet, four feet, maybe six feet to the point where it was growing above the window line. And I just went, man, if this is an indicator of, you know, how you take care of the place where you live and for eight hours a day and you work and your livelihood comes from it, what happens to me as a customer? And I just know that around here, using the lean methodology, we go for safety, quality, simplicity, speed in that order. And if there's a fifth one, it's going to be money. Money is like the last thing that you pursue and you definitely don't compromise on the other on the first four for the sake of money so yeah i suppose it was a good deal but i don't know there's it's all the unseen what well let me put it this way the things that were seen turned me off to the things that are unseen like the real nitty-gritty like control cabinet under the casting cylinders the tanks things like that And really the wear and tear, the untold stories of how many riggers have dropped this machine. It just didn't pass the gut check. (laughs) I remember seeing, it must've been IMTS, I think 2018. And there was a photo that went around after the show. Uh, Of Matsura? No, an Okuma. Okuma, yes. Some riggers dropped a big Okuma lathe. Yeah, yeah. And I remember looking at that going, ooh. I know. Someone's getting a trade show deal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, can I I put an indicator on? No, 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 no. It's this much. Take it or leave it. I just saw on Instagram one where it was like they were using straps to lift it, and it did a full 180 where it landed on its head. And, of course, the comments are like, you know, Craigslist say, like new. Yeah, that'll Uh, buff out. Yeah. Lightly used. Yeah. Um, I follow Ogle Components. Yeah, Josh Ogle. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, customer of ours. Good guy. His Kitamura got dropped a couple months ago when he was moving to his new shop. No. The Riggers took his main machine just and killed it. No way. Yeah. It makes me sick to look at posts about it. I mean, I, I feel sorry for the guy. Obviously, Certainly the riggers felt terrible. No rigger ever drops somebody's livelihood and then just laughs it off and walks away. Yeah. You feel bad. But one of the scariest moments of my entire life was the move from our old shop to this current shop, which is only a 10-minute drive. Uh-huh. But it is on a really, really windy, hilly Indiana State Highway to the point where they actually have signage posted saying semis do not use this highway take 46 instead got it it is a recommended non heavy transport route oh. and i hired a rigger to come move my machines i'd worked with the guy before he had he did he'd brought in previous machines to our shop and done a fine job but that was when we were getting them delivered from the showroom to us and in this case he was subcontracting out his own truck and he was showing up, he was having a rented forklift delivered and then hired a trucker to move the machines. And the dude showed up with a, a big old Dodge dually that was beat up and a gooseneck trailer that had 
fist-sized rust holes through the deck in places. And I'm looking at this going, I don't want my machines getting strapped to that. That yeah. does not look structurally sound. Yeah. Wow. And what we ended up doing was I just stayed out there while I loaded the machines because they have to get them off their little foot plates, get them out of the shop, pick spots on the bed where they can put all four feet down on solid metal, then strap them. We had to lock the doors open and all this other stuff. And then we were driving to the new shop and I was following behind the trailer that was hauling my machines. Mm-hmm. And watching that sort of weave and rock on this bobbing, twisty, curvy highway, it was like 10 minutes of the most intense anxiety I've ever had. And we got to the new shop and they pulled into the parking lot. And I just parked my car and had to take 30 deep breaths because I had been like clenched up. Yeah. My hands were tight. My jaw was tight. My entire back was tight watching that go down the road in front of me. Yeah. The, the engine that makes your livelihood was on that trailer. Was on that trailer. Yeah. That happened. We moved where we're currently at the end of 21. Yeah. We had a total of four fully loaded trailers, two trailers on two different days. It got easier because there was diversification in risk. But when I moved about, well, in 2018, when we moved from our old shop, we moved a hundred yards down the road. That was anxiety inducing because they just said, well, this machine's small enough. Let's drive it down on the forklift. I don't think I would have done that again because they hit the bottom of the gutter at the forklift. And then you see this massive amount of weight teetering. And I just go, no, really should have just thrown it. And I think it was like the, oh, it was the saw and maybe some cabinetry. Like it wasn't, I would never do that with a VF or anything like that. But in that move in 2018, I sold a 2013 Haas Super Mini Mill 2 to David Bamforth. He's Renscott on Instagram. And he flew out, he looked at it, I sold it to him and we timed it perfectly so that when we were moving out, I would already have a rigger there. David hired a, like a cross country, like hotshot driver, I think it is to come pick it up. And we documented the story on our, we call it the move season one. And so they showed up with that exact same configuration a dually with a gooseneck trailer. And I turned to the rigger that was there and I'm like, I don't think this machine should go on that trailer all the way to the Boston area. Like you're pushing 2,500, 3,000 miles. And he's like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm like, really? Okay. Can you be the bad guy? Hell yeah. I'll get this guy right out of here. And he did. He ran him off and they had words and he said, get out of here, you know, and they were about six hours late or something like that. And I told David, I said, hey, whatever rigging company or shipping company, they really screwed you over. It needs an air ride. We want a large trailer. This was a hot shot. This was something that goes across town, not across the country. So, Yep. When I had my two 450s delivered, we used a private contractor to freight them, to rig them. And they also showed up with a pretty heavy duty truck but actually had an air ride trailer. Yeah. And these were factory new machines in a crate. And even though the overall scale and size was similar to the Dually and the Rusty trailer that had moved our machines into our new shop, the contrast between the quality of the equipment and the attention to detail of these two companies was really, really visible. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, if I were buying equipment and I pulled up outside a place that just looked unkempt, I'd have reservations. But this leads me to a thought that I've had many times, which is I have always been surprised in my adult life at the way that certain things retain or at least retain in the owner's mind value. Because I've been in beat up warehouses with like old equipment and burnout lights and all this stuff. And you look at all this stuff in the shop and you think, this is practically a junk sale. I wonder what they're wanting for this. And then you ask them like, oh yeah, $30,000 for this or that. And you're like, really? Yeah. Am I delusional or are you delusional? And the idea that industrial equipment retains this intrinsic value, I was like, it's industrial, it's commercial grade. It's like, well, it's also now 30 years old and not well-maintained. Yeah. That's multifaceted. I think to an owner, they know all the revenue that those machines have output over the years. And so there's a full sense of value. 
The other facet is that people stop seeing their dirt and their junk over time. Well, I've said this publicly, like some of the best improvements we have are from new hires because they go, Hey, you know, I have a question. Why do you do it like this? seems like a lot of over-processing. And I just look at a guy that's been with me, you know, half, half a decade. And I go, it's a darn great question. You know why we do it that way? Because when I created this process in 2014, I was that's in a rush that I day and that's the way I did it. It's been followed ever since. Yep. Thank you for noticing that. And we change it. So, yeah, I actually had this talk last week with my newest employee. And I said, I really want you to take the most possible advantage mm-hmm. of your first two months here. Look at everything. Yeah. Look at everything. If you see anything you don't understand, ask me about it. So when we hire new people, when we onboard folks, the first thing I give them is Paul Akers, two-second lean. Mm -hmm. And that is just ground zero for us in understanding how we want to onboard people into the fix what bugs you. Simple, straightforward, quick, easy, cheap, lean I don't really spend a lot of time using Japanese terminology. I prefer to use English. So we mm-hmm. use error proofing instead of pokey oak. I like that. Yeah. Because I want to give people tools that don't involve them having to memorize a bunch of new and seemingly arbitrary stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually have aspirations culturally to look like a Japanese company. Mm-hmm. I have aspirations quality wise, efficiency wise, cleanliness, mm-hmm. speed. I have those goals. But we're not ever going to have people in matching jumpsuits with the cute little Japanese hats on. There are things that they do that make sense for them and blend in there and are normal there that we're never going to do. Yeah. And finding ways to get people plugged in so that they consistently start to see the shop through the lens we want them to be looking through, which is we're trying to eliminate waste. We're trying to fix what bugs us. We are intense about safety and cost is the least concern. Right. It's not a non-concern. We, yeah. There's a famous YouTube video that I've seen a few times of Milton Friedman talking to an auditorium full of students. And this young guy gets up and he basically says, we've now heard a bunch of news stories about automakers knowing that their cars are dangerous and that they choose, they basically do the math of, will it cost more to recall the car or will it cost more to pay off the insurance claims and lawsuits from people whose family members were killed in the car? And if the recall is more expensive than the cost of paying off claims, we just don't recall the car. And he says, and it seems like according to your principles, Mr. Friedman, that's a reasonable choice, but it seems immoral to me. And what Milton Friedman said in response really stuck with me, which is, he said, nobody can accept the proposition that an infinite amount of economic value should be placed upon a single human life. And it's not that human lives aren't incredibly valuable. They're sacred. They're precious. Mm -hmm. We are made in God's image. We are infinitely valuable on some levels. Mm -hmm. But the idea that if we could spend a trillion dollars to save one life, would we have a moral obligation to spend that trillion dollars to save one life? It actually isn't the case because we're never, ever considering things in isolation. We're always considering things in the context of all the other possible things that we could do with the time, with the energy, with the money, with the brain power, with the resources. Yeah. And the guy is caught completely flat-footed by this idea of, well, the more important question is, how much money are people willing to spend to protect their own lives? Mm-hmm. And Friedman said, what we actually find is generally not very much. <laughs> <laughs> and that as, a, as an idea that money is not the driver. Money is not the principal concern. But we all live in economic reality. And any place we consume resources, we no longer have them to spend on other things. I listened to a few podcasts related to the energy industry and Bitcoin because I'm interested in how that works. I'm not interested so much in cryptocurrency as a whole, but Bitcoin in particular. And one of the things that they talk about repeatedly is the idea that economic value money is essentially labor stored up over time and converted to a fungible asset that you can trade. That money, wealth is the product of 
actual work, which is why the whole proof of work structure in Bitcoin, where you have data centers doing a huge amount of brute force calculation that consumes an enormous amount of dollars of energy in order to do the work. Yeah. That proof of work protects anybody from counterfeiting, prevents anybody from counterfeiting or cheating because it is literally too costly to cheat. Yeah. And so the system just maintains itself. That idea that when you destroy wealth, when you have a system, an, a general economic system where capital is being misallocated, that actually destroys real wealth. Mm-hmm. Even something as simple as if you have a bunch of mortgages and financing given to frivolous skyscraper projects that don't actually have the backing to get finished, and you consume hundreds of thousands of cubic yards of concrete and rebar, and then the project gets put on hold and it never gets finished, and 10 years from now it gets demoed because it was never occupiable, Mm -hmm. that actually destroyed a huge amount of real wealth because everybody else who wanted to buy concrete and rebar when that was getting built couldn't get it. Yeah. Or had to buy over top of this huge consumption. Sure. And that as a concept is, it's really refreshing to me. It's simple. The idea that when we're allocating resources, we're always trying to get the most bang for our buck everywhere. Mm-hmm. For our company, for our employees, for our families, for the charities we support Anywhere and everywhere that we can give time, energy, money, any kind of resource that's limited, which basically every resource is limited. Yeah. We're always, we're not trying to go for perfection. We're trying to go for maximizing the value. Right. And or perceived value. Like yes. my wife, she will go, you have coals in your area? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So Cole sends out like that surprise, ooh, did I get a 10%, 15 or the whopping 30% coupon? And when she gets a 30% coupon, she scratches it off. I got 30%. She's obligated to go in. And I say, but sweetheart, they probably mark up their stuff 100%. It's a perceived discount. They really get the people that pay. If I walk in, I need shoes or jeans. I, I'm just not going to take the time to search for a coupon. And so there's another layer on top of that, the perception of getting the deal too. So in a lot of cases, and I really like, and we've mentioned before, talked about before, the British marketer, Rory Sutherland. Mm -hmm. And he has really clever and humorous and insightful TED Talks and other kinds of lectures and presentations on how perceived value or what he calls psychological value is real value. Because things aren't what they are, they are what we perceive them to be, is what he says. Uh And that is a real thing. Like Even something as simple as the example he uses that wine poured out of a heavier bottle tastes better. Interesting. Like If you pick it up and it's like, oh, this is a plastic bottle with a twist-off cap. My brother-in-law makes fun of me and my sisters endlessly. So I've got five sisters and two brothers, but my brother-in-law- Whenever we're having dinner together at somebody's house, they live in New York, we go back and visit them. He's like, I don't know what it is with your family, but everybody in your family buys wine with a twist off cap. Nobody buys wine with a cork. What is with that? And I'm like, we are not buying $5 wine. $5 wine doesn't even really exist anymore in 2023. But 10 years ago, I used to buy $4.97 wine from Walmart. It was Rex Goliath brand and it came with a synthetic, but a cork. Okay. <laughs> and nowadays, like a fifteen or twenty dollar bottle comes with a twist off cap. And when you've got seven siblings and you're having family dinner, a twist off cap is fine because the bottle's going to be gone at the end yes. of the evening. Nobody yeah, cares. Exactly. Yeah. But it's so funny to him that like the difference between a bottle of wine with a twist off cap and the bottle of wine with a cork has this outsized perceived value. Yeah. Delta for him. And I'm like, I don't care, man. Is it red or white? I'm not that much of a wine guy. Like, yeah, yeah. I'll but have think, a glass. Eh. Th- think about it this way. I don't know if you're the same way, but I know a lot of people are. How many iPhone and Samsung boxes do we have in our closets? Because the packaging was just so beautiful. I don't want to throw it away. There's that packaging perception. I throw like, those away instantly. Dude, good for you. 
you're a 10 percenter. It now, does it, does will, it not cross your mind to keep it? No. <laughs> really? Okay. No. Wait, wait, wait. How, let me throw it. Okay. When you buy a new guitar pedal, do you throw away that box? Instantly. Really? Huh. Okay. Because the box in resale does have value. I don't in, remember the last time I've resold a pedal. Oh, fair. Yeah. Okay. Because there's even that YouTube channel, JHS Pedals. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got that jingle. We've got the box because he shows off all these pedals and <laughs> he's got the box. Okay. So it is a rare thing. There is a, I don't buy collectible pedals. I had an opportunity over a decade ago to buy a gold and oxblood original Klon Centaur pedal oh. at a local guitar shop. And at the time it was 600 bucks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> which was way outside my budget at the time. But those oxblood and gold original Klon Centaurs now are thousands of dollars. Right. Easily. And there is almost nothing that is made of quality that if you buy it and hold it long enough, it won't appreciate in some significant way. That's true. But like, who's got 40 years? This is a game I play with myself. If I could go back to 1965 and I had the money, would I buy myself 35 blackface Princeton reverb amplifiers, leave them in original packaging, put them in a climate controlled space? Wait till 2015 and then profit. I'd probably you know, be dead by then. You know like what? I, e even if you did, you'd have sold everything 10 times over. Well, potentially, there's a very real chance that the things you hold on to, like the opportunity cost of holding things. Yeah, exactly. Is, it's is a wash, huge. at least. Now, yeah. I will tell you what packaging I did keep. I spent a bunch of money on a Kemper amp, power conditioner, and a cab. Okay. And when all that stuff came, because I was then in my new shop and had loft storage space at the back of the building where we've got many offices built out and it can't take a lot of weight, but you can stick empty cardboard boxes up on top of it. Sure. I took the box for the amp head, put it inside the box for the cabinet, put the power conditioner packaging in it, packed it all down, taped it up and tossed it up on there. Mm -hmm. Because if I ever need to send the amp out for repair... I can't take a Kemper to my local guitar store and have them work on those proprietary circuits. I'm going to have to ship it back to Kemper. Yeah. And so in that one case, the custom foam inserts and the right size box and all that stuff, I wanted to keep. Sure. But generally, I throw away packaging really, really fast. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know what? I need to have a standard for this. I no longer hold phone boxes. That's what I'm going to tell myself. Okay. So are you are robots? I do anticipate that someday I'll sell them off. I want that box because yeah. it's forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of equipment. I want yeah. that box or boxes. Yeah. yeah. But if in our last YouTube video that went live on Sunday, I talked about our refurbished Dells, those boxes, I'm like, why are we keeping these? Why is and we have a storage shed in the back while we're doing construction. Why are we keeping these? Wait, that's on me. No, no, no. These just need to go straight in the trash. We will never resell these. We will never move them in the box. If we really did need to move, or actually when we moved here, the all-in-one computers we use for Fusion workstations, we threw in the back seats of the guys that work here. We didn't even use the boxes that I've been yeah. holding. Yeah. 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 Nope. Most of the things that we own, by the time we're done using them, aren't going to have enough value to, to justify shipping them anywhere. Right. And if they do, they will have enough value to justify me packaging them carefully in an obscene amount of bubble wrap mm -hmm. and putting them in a generic size box and shipping them. Yeah. I'm really curious to do like a poll, like in the show notes, just for oh, my own curiosity to see, ask, do you keep boxes for phones? Let's just say phones. Cause that's a big, everyone's got one. Yeah. yeah I throw those away instantly. I take the phone out. I make sure I'm not missing anything else in the box. Cause it's like an origami puzzle box. Okay. I pulled all apart. Yes, I got all the cords. Yes, and then all the paperwork and the box straight in the trash. Yeah. Wow. Such discipline. It's not discipline. I just get annoyed. Is it like at this point, it's not an active, it's just what you do. You don't think yes. twice about it. Okay. Yeah. Nope. That's nature. I like that. Yeah. I have definitely crossed some sort of Rubicon in the past 10 years. So I went back to my parents' house this spring and- they still have in their attic a number of things that are mine that I owned when I was in high school that I did not have room to take with me to college 
and I have not been home with a trailer to pick stuff up. So they've got boxes of a bunch of my books. They've got a bunch of other just random stuff. And I went up in the attic for an afternoon and I threw most of it out. Yeah. There were a bunch of things in there that had a lot of sentimental value to me, or I remembered them having sentimental value to me when I had packed them for storage. Yeah. Wow. And now I open them up and I'm like, oh, that thing is still in here. So there's a real value to taking 10 years away from something and going, I haven't missed that or thought about it or cared about it. And the person who gave that to me is dead now. And it mattered to me when they were alive because it was a gift that they gave me and I loved having it, but I don't use it. I'm not going to use it again. Yep. And it's in bad shape because it's been sitting in an attic for 10 years. It just needs to go in the trash. Yeah. That's like the Marie Kondo approach. I probably watched 10 minutes of her show, but it's like, here's an inanimate object that there's feelings and memories attached to it, but it really has no value to anyone. You save it and they dump it in the coffin at the end of your life. Like I've actively thought that. Yeah. Well, the question of which of these things do I want my kids to have to dig through when they're cleaning out my estate is a real question. There are things that my kids could find that I have where it'd be like, oh yeah, I remember this thing. Dad talked about this thing or he showed us this or this was his favorite, this or that. Yeah. And those things might actually have sentimental value to them. But in a lot of cases, it's just going to be like, what is this? How does this thing work? I know. What is this for? Yeah. Yeah. It's a constant joke in the gun world. I have this terrible fear that after I die, my wife will sell off all my guns for what I told her I paid for them. (laughs) And that's like a bumper sticker and a shirt and it's this meme. But the idea that psychological value is real value, but psychological value is usually not transferable until you get into collectors and people who are really intense and passionate about something. Sure. And then- the provenance of the thing, who owned it. Like in classical instruments, the most famous instruments are the Stradivaries, mm-hmm. the Guarneris, the Amatis. And many of those are actually named after the most famous person or persons who have owned them in the lifetime of the instrument, like the X Gingold Strad or the Kreutzer Strad or the Bass of Spain cello. Mm-hmm. And these are instruments that are one of a kind, can never be made again. And the past 250 years of the history of everybody who owned it is known. Yeah, The same way you can look back at a family tree and say, okay, yeah, the Ole Bull Strad was bought in 18 whatever, and then was passed to this person, to this person, was sent to this dealer in London, bought by this person, put in this collection, then sold in London to this person. And then you can say, okay, I've got the entire history of the instrument It is incredibly valuable. It's collectible art. It's this whole thing. But the kind of stuff that I have in my life is not like that. Yeah. And especially now when we have digital assets, like I remember looking at photos of my great-grandparents and in some cases, great-great-grandparents who I never met. They were dead long before I was born. And It was really cool to see them, but I don't have anything that belonged to them. There are no hand-me-downs. There are no family heirlooms from them. But my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids are going to be like, oh, yeah, great-great-grandpa, he had a podcast. Mm -hmm. There's (laughs) hundreds of hours of him on YouTube. I mean, they won't even have USB that far in the future, but here's a data drive that's got all of his Instagram posts if you want to dig through all that. Yeah, right. Instagram, what was even that? Right. And we have the ability to have digital artifacts Uh that are like the maximal sentimental value. Yeah. Because if I could see movies with sound of my great, great, great grandparents, I'd watch every single minute of that. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think I probably my most valuable family heirloom would be a photograph of my grandfather, my dad's dad. He's standing on top of one of the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge, fully suited up. He's 21 years old at the time. And you can see behind him the cables draped behind him all the way to the shore. And there's no bridge. There's no deck. 
<laughs> yes. And he was a cable guy building the Golden Gate Bridge and whatever year that, it was. That's an amazing piece of history. Yeah. My most valuable family heirlooms are my great-grandfather's photographs, medical tools, and helmet from his service in World War I in France. Wow, that's cool. Wow. And I have both his letters he wrote home. Uh-huh. I have issued U.S. Army maps that he carried in France. And I have photographs that he took when he was there. Wow. And those are, there's nothing else that I have yeah. that I care as much about preserving to give to my kids and their kids right. as that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. You know what's sad is you can buy a lot of those heirlooms on eBay. Like my dad had a standing eBay search for Pearson. Yep. And he would come across these letters from wartime letters, essentially, that General Pearson, there, there used to be like some Colonel Pearson that just wrote a ton of stuff to his family. <laughs> and so I, I went on and I bought a, one out of pure impulse for 10 or 15 bucks. I don't, I haven't traced my genealogy to him. It's Pearson spelled the right way. Like I spell it P-I-E-R, not P-E-A-R. And I just go, that's neat. But someone doesn't have this. Some great grandchild does not have this document. That is a piece of their history. Well, I guess the most dignified thing I could do is just to keep it alive by the fact that it's merely owned by someone with the last name Pearson. Well, Jay, bloodlines end. Yeah. There might be no grandkids left. There might be literally no one yeah. left. It's not, it's not a foregone conclusion that 200 years from now, any of my descendants will be living. That's true. Wow. You have no idea. But the ability to have digital artifacts like videos of me and my wife and our kids, mm -hmm. those are really, really valuable. We grew up in Rochester. My family were Kodak people. And we have boxes, small boxes, full of stereoscopic Kodak color slides. That's you cool. You put them in a viewer with a light source behind them and yeah. you get like a 3D image. I've got 3D color photographs of my three-year-old dad walking around in the front yard of his house in Rochester. Oh, with my grandma and my grandpa cool. walking around behind him. And it's like, that is an amazing, amazing thing. That is cool. But my grandkids- it, Really quick, is, it, is there a Kodak connection to Rochester? Yeah. Uh, okay. Eastman Kodak is in Rochester. George okay. Eastman and the Eastman House Museum is in Rochester. And Eastman Kodak was graded there. So okay. my great-grandfather, when he went to France for World War I, took a very, very early Kodak camera with him and took photographs. Wow. That is so awesome. <laughs> it's, a it's a really neat thing. Rochester yeah. as an overall city, though- it's pretty depressed because the big companies there were Xerox, Bausch & Lomb, and Kodak. And all of those companies from the late 80s to the mid-2000s got just decimated. Yeah. Maybe Bausch & Lomb is the only one barely hanging on. Xerox used to be like Kleenex. Xerox was yeah. the copier. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Go Xerox that. Right. Exactly. Nobody says that anymore. No. I, have, I don't remember the last time I've heard somebody say, yeah, can you grab some, can you Xerox this for me? Yeah. And so they've completely lost that. Bausch and Lomb, I remember for like glasses and contacts and things. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, Kodak shot themselves in the head on the digital camera revolution and just, they were late to the game. They got behind the curve and they never caught back up. That's right. Yep. Good and Canon lesson. and Nikon and Fuji ate their lunch. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Even Sony is really creeping in on the DSLR market. If you're into cameras, there's no, what is it? Mirrorless. Yep. Something like that. Yeah. Yep. So I made the jump on my last camera purchase. I made the jump from DSLR to mirrorless and it's great. I did a lot of photography in high school. I shot a lot of film. And then by junior year, I switched to shooting entirely digital. And the biggest thing that made for me, the difference that made for me was I could just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot yeah. and shoot and shoot and shoot. And it was free. Right. Exactly. And that ability to have a thousand at bats at taking even at a certain time of year or a certain season, I could go out and shoot 300 photographs in an afternoon and then review them all. And the next day, go out and make corrections, mm -hmm. corrections in framing, corrections in lighting, corrections in composition, and shoot again. Where if I was shooting that on film and like the leaves on the trees were the perfect color today, and I shoot three rolls of film and I go to get it processed, 
maybe I get 24 hour processing and a day later I can see the results. Mm -hmm. But maybe by the time I get my photographs back, the leaves are browned. Yeah. And the shot's gone till next year. Sure. And that idea that digital, the same way that simulation in, in cam software, so valuable. I can just see what's going to happen. Now we're not using any kind of really intense machine simulation. I'm just simulating things in Fusion or simulating things in Inventor. But that is still so valuable as a way of quick and cheap seeing what's going to happen, what's expected mm. to happen. Yeah. And every once in a while, I'm in a hurry and I miss something like I did yesterday. <laughs> and I have a ball mill try to interpolate a bore that's supposed to be drilled and just didn't catch that I didn't have my bottom work plane set in the right place. And it, in that case, it was fine. It was a clearance hole. It was not dimensionally tight. Yeah. But I heard, I was, you know, I'm doing this ball mill finish pass. And then I watch all of a sudden go, and this really tight little spiral. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I stopped it. And I'm like, oh, I know what that was. I forgot to exclude that bore. I forgot to set that as do not touch. Yeah. I went back to my software and sure enough, wasn't selected. Are you using Fusion these days? I'm using Inventor primarily. Okay, that's Fusion, what I But I really like Inventor. It's what I learned on. Yeah. And I still stick to it primarily. Yeah. The biggest thing is the interface in Fusion with the way I have to arrange things. I find it much, much clumsier to get to what I want to get to. There's many more drop downs. The layout is not the way that I like. Mm -hmm. And I'm not using it on a laptop. Fusion on a small laptop makes total sense. It keeps things out of your way. But I'm using it on a desktop on large monitors. I have room for the entire ribbon to be expanded. I want to see all the things and be able to one touch, click that thing. Mm. Oh, that's a different workflow because I'll use, well, I'll pin things, pin my most commonly used tools. If I don't use tool, unpin them. Okay. And then on top of that, I just use hotkeys and you can assign hotkeys, but I just keep them at the default. Or most of the time, the workflow I started to use now is I just hit the S key, which brings up a search box okay. and I will just type in center and it'll pop up a short list of all the different types of tools that start with center and I'll do a center to center slot. That's what I'm looking for. So I'll just type S C E N. Oh, there it is. Yeah. That's a workflow I've never considered using. Yeah. It's different because typically I have my right hand is occupied with the mouse, the left hand, you hit the S and you should start typing. You can get lucky a lot of times. For example, what is it? I want to say chamfer does not have a hotkey a default hotkey assigned to it. So I need to click. Which it should. Gosh. It should. And look, I'm pretty sure you can these days. You certainly could yep. with SolidWorks. But I just go S-C-H-A. That's all with one hand. And then there it is. I just hit enter because that's the only thing left. When you type in S-C-H-A, because it starts to spell chamfer. Yep. And there it is. You just hit S-C-H-A, enter. I'm in chamfer mode. So. Hmm. Yeah. Give it a shot. Do yeah. you use a space mouse or any kind of view control? I've got a bitchin' space mouse, which- Yeah, like the full- Space mouse enterprise, which is a combo right now. It does two things. It's a paperweight and a dust shield for everything that's under it. <laughs> I probably touch it once a month because I accidentally bump into it. Seriously. I yeah. use my space mouse every day. Can't do it. It takes my left hand off the keyboards, like the hotkeys. And you can even assign hotkeys to what, how many? There's 12 buttons. Yeah. I just I assign one to chamfer, man. <laughs> I did. There's actually a chamfer. Number four or number three is a chamfer. I went through, I set it up beautifully, but I just don't use it. That's wild. You know why? Mm. It's because I go between three different computers. Huh. So I'll use this computer. I'm at work today. Usually I'd be on my home computer or a laptop. And those interfaces are the same. They all have keyboards and mice. So you just click on the view cube. I do. I sure do. I move my mouse way up there and click on it. Wasted motion, man. A hundred percent. And are you a mouse guy or a trackball guy? Mouse. Okay, there's wait, some more wasted motion. Wait, are there hotkeys for the faces of the view cube? 
I don't know. I don't use the ViewCube. I never touch the ViewCube. The ViewCube is disgusting. No, I know it is, but is there like <laughs> is is there like a control one that goes home control two? Oh, I have no idea. How, well, what do you use then? How do you? I get use here? a space mouse. I never touch the ViewCube. Okay, when you go to look at a face of your design face on, how do you look at that squarely without being? If I out? need an absolutely square view, which I yeah. basically never do, uh-huh. then I will click on a face on the ViewCube. That's the only time I ever touch the ViewCube. Okay, all right. So you just don't see a, a value to the ViewCube. I see it as I would just as easily have the things I do with a ViewCube be in a drop-down menu. Okay. Show me a left view, right view, top view, bottom view, back view, whatever. I don't use it. So I, I like trackballs because I keep my trackball right next to the number pad so that my right hand thumb can hit the enter key on the numpad. Yeah. And then my left hand is on a compact space mouse. I don't have the big enterprise one, nothing with programmable. It's got a few programmable buttons, but I don't use them. Uh And I have it tucked up right next to the keyboard so I can be doing view stuff and then quickly reach to my WASD position and do anything I need there. And I do often use certain hotkeys. Like I don't use L because it's the opposite end of the keyboard from where my hand is, but I do use some hotkeys, but I have the sensitivity on my trackball and on my space mouse set really high. I like to be able to spin the whole thing around with a very small amount of motion, which can make a person watching over my shoulder feel kind of seasick because I have this very kind of spazzy, like zoom in, zoom out, jump around, spin. And it's a little chaotic, but Okay, so let me ask you this, because this is maybe where I'm a little bit OCD kicking in here. If you are editing a sketch, when you jump into that sketch, it automatically orients it so it's perpendicular to your vision. Really? I hate that. Wait, okay, okay, wait. Oh, it drives me. It drives me. Wait, 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 wait. Let me let me keep going. Okay, so it does that. It's not in the right orientation. (laughs) Maybe off by ninety degrees. That pisses me off. But let's say that you bump it so that view goes a few degrees out of perpendicularity to your vision. Will you continue to edit that sketch even though it's not facing you? So I can't use the view cube for that because often my sketches are on faces that are not coplanar Fair. with the size okay. of the view cube. And I use a trackball over a mouse because a trackball isolates the location of the cursor from the clicking action. The number of times I've been trying to fine click on some little detail that's hard to get the cursor to indicate. And if I have a mouse at the last second as I'm in the process of clicking it, just like when you're shooting a pistol, you want to line up your sights and then you want to isolate the trigger motion and not have that trigger pull disturb your sight alignment. I like to be able Uh to set my cursor with the trackball, take my thumb off the trackball and then click on that thing and not have anything move. And a lot of times, especially if I'm drawing on a weird surface or dealing with something that's odd, I will, before I click on the thing I want, I will move with my space mouse to exactly the view of it that I want. And then I take my hand off the space mouse and I select that surface, create a new sketch. And I do not want the software to change my view orientation or perspective in any way. I don't want it to snap to 90. I don't want it to zoom in or out. I want it to leave it exactly where I put it because that's where I wanted it when I clicked new sketch. I don't, from a distance, grab a surface, click new sketch, and then gradually work my way over into the view that I want. I get exactly where I can see what I want to see. Then I select my plane or my surface and then click new sketch. And I want it to leave my view. And that is a setting of preferences. Yes, and I un I the uh, I don't know what it's called like yeah snap uh, auto orient view something like that yeah yeah I uncheck that faster than I throw away an <laughs> iPhone box just instantly <laughs> okay I'm gonna go through and look through some of this because I cannot work in a sketch if it is not perfectly perpendicular to to my vision oh, oh you would hate the gosh. way that I model no I just I, <laughs> even if I bumped it okay so I'm working on new products like that Sunday video launch will show it but. I was playing around with the label that's going to go on a kind of the perimeter of this round work holding device. And it's a weird, super gross, like 41.72 degrees. I know that is a gross angular dimension, 
So I will go up to the top left corner. There's a plane on there. Click on that plane and then click the look at icon. So I know that I'm looking okay. straight on with no skew. Yeah, just, yeah. Okay. Okay. Totally. In that kind of case, a lot of the stuff that I sketch, my workflow is generally work planes, work then planes solid. Solid. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I do a ton of creation of work planes. Like when I'm catting up a new gun, I get the gun, I get calipers, radius gauges, angle gauges, and I do a bunch of measurements and I create 25 or 30 work planes that define all the key features. And then I gradually go and choose which one I'm going to sketch on, which ones I'm going to project intersections from, and use those to define all the component solids that make mm -hmm. up my composite gun shape. But I don't actually use the look mm -hmm. at feature okay. ever. And it doesn't bother me to sketch things out of square. It doesn't bother me at all. I need to see what I see, but I don't need to see it perfectly usually. That is just so wild, yeah. And that also, that connects very much to my training and my experience as a pistol shooter, which is what you're looking for when you align sights on the target is that you are looking for sight alignment uh, that is good yeah. enough. Okay. And a lot of students, when they're shooting slow, especially novice shooters, when they're shooting at a fairly small target, they will spend a lot of time trying to get the sight alignment perfect where more experienced shooters generally have the ability to speed up or slow down their sight acquisition and say, at this distance, I just need a very rough sight picture. This target is five yards away. I know the size of the A zone on this target. I can be anywhere in there and it counts. <laughs> if you're doing competition shooting, like the difference between being at the dead center of the bullseye versus toward the edge of the bullseye mm. is zero points. That's over-processing. If you're in the X-ring, doesn't matter yeah. where in the X-ring you are. If you're in the A-zone, it doesn't matter where yeah. in the A-zone you are. The dude who gets two hits in the A-zone that are six inches apart and the dude in the A-zone who gets them six millimeters apart, huh. same score. You really don't take the time to aim for the center because if you're a little bit off... Well, the application determines okay. the level of accuracy. If I'm hunting and I'm trying to humanely sure. kill a large animal, I will take the time to very, very carefully place that shot because I care about the anatomy and the angle and what the uh -huh. bullet's going to have to go through. And if I can't get a shot that I really, really want, yeah. I don't take it. But if I'm shooting competitive handgun where you're being scored on zones on the target, then anywhere in the A zone, it's like the joke, what do you call a person who graduated at the bottom of their law school class? You're on That's great. Yeah. It is very much the physical yeah, equivalent exactly. of C's yeah. get degrees. If your target is of a certain size at a certain distance and you know you can yeah. reliably hit it with a fairly coarse sight alignment, then anything more than that. So when is I just pitched uh, in college, my college coach, the pitching coach, gave me a great piece of information. He said, "Jay, when you're pitching and it's later in innings, and your control starts to get a little out of control, if you're trying to pitch yep. and hit what's called the corners of the plate, either the outside or inside edge, what's happening is you're aiming for those, but because your control is off." It's either way outside, like if I'm aiming for the outside edge of the plate, if I miss, I'm going to miss way outside. If I miss inside, it's going to be right down the middle. He says, as you get yep. tired, aim for the middle because it'll drift to one of the two corners, which are equally difficult to hit. And I'm trying to think if there's an yep. analog there in business. Where I think about it is there's a ton of data in a business my size. Mm -hmm which is not big. There's already a paralyzing amount of data available to me. And in many cases, the levers that I'm pulling are only very coarsely connected to the mm -hmm. outcomes I'm trying to see. None of the levers are really yeah. labeled that well. <laughs> like I can try doing this and see what happens. I can try doing this and see what happens. But I can't ever isolate a single factor and guarantee that this is the one and only thing that yeah, drove this right. business outcome.
Maybe it was the market. Maybe it was the news. Maybe it was civil unrest across the country. Maybe it was a banking strike or a UPS strike. Maybe it was tornadoes. Did you ever watch the TV show Silicon Valley? No. Okay. It's darkly hilarious. There's a scene with this very sort of almost savant, brilliant, but hard to relate to investor has one of his underlings go out and buy one of everything off the menu at Burger King and has them bring this to his office and they lay out everything Burger King sells. And he's looking at it all and he goes, there are a surprising amount of seeds on all of these bread pieces. And these are sesame seeds. And sesame seeds are only produced in three countries in the world. And next year, two of those three countries are going to have a cicada population burst. And it's going to line up in those two different countries for the first time in over 50 years. Is having this complicated thing where I'm going to go out and short sesame seed futures because I know next year, this weird concurrence of events is going to mean that cicadas are going to decimate the sesame seed crops in these two countries. And I'm going to make absolute bank because Burger King still needs tons and tons and tons of sesame seeds for all their breadings. And it's like, yeah, things are as weird as that. Little things ripple across the economy, ripple across the world and impact us in Mm -hmm. really surprising ways. So the levers that I pull in business are kind of a black box. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's very, very obvious. You do this thing, this thing happens. You change this price, this thing happens. You run this ad, it's Mm -hmm. trackable, this thing happens. But back to Rory Sutherland, the idea that when you say you put out an email to your email list, I did this yesterday. We just got back in stock a product that had been out of stock for us for a year and a half. We had it made by an outside vendor. Our previous vendors discontinued offering it. They said, we don't have time. Our machines are under contract. We can't make this part for you anymore. I found somebody else. I arranged with that new shop, gave them a PO. And then they had some other thing that came up that delayed production for months and months. And then we had to change coding companies. And there were just all these moving pieces just all moved to the wrong place all at the same time. And we finally got this in and we emailed the customers. We're like, hey, this is finally back in stock. If you are on the wait list, it's here. We're shipping today. We have it. But the idea that I can track the conversion rate, the click-through rate and the conversion rate from that email and say, this email is the only thing that produced that result. Even if it's completely trackable, if I have total every single click they clicked on this, then they clicked on this, then they watched the video, then they clicked add to cart, then they checked out immediately. The idea that there aren't any other factors that influence that yeah. is yeah. ludicrous. That's good stuff. It's the same way I've said to my guys in the shop, anytime anybody tells me they know exactly how much it costs them to make something if they're a manufacturing company, they're like, oh yeah, that costs us $15 and 17 cents right. to make. I'm like, baloney. Yeah. It's an approximation. It's a guess. Yeah. It's a guess based on historical data, but it's a guess. 